Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at the Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. May I have the next 90 minutes of your time? If you'll do that, give me those 90 minutes. I'll give you men, broadcast partners across the entire world, that will help us to understand current events in light of the fact that God's Word lays out a prophetic scenario, and these current events seem to be fitting into that prophetic scenario, indicating that God's prophetic plan for the end times could come quickly into place. So keep the dial set where it is. You do not want to miss these reports. One of them, David James, our last report in our last half hour, will be talking about the situation in Cuba. David was recently in Cuba, went to meet with the Christian community there. You need to hear that story, plus all the rest, and in particular, our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Ken is located in southern France. I told you somewhere around the world that we would find Ken, and he would come to the broadcast table to give us insight into geopolitical events happening in our world. And Ken, let me start with this one. President Rouhani, now he is still president of Iran, at least till sometime in August, and he's giving a warning that Iran now can enrich uranium to a weapons level, meaning they could put that nuclear weapon of mass destruction together pretty quickly, couldn't they? Well, that's right. And Rouhani made these remarks in a cabinet meeting. Now, let's remember, he has very little power. He is not just a lame duck president, but a president of small parts of the Iranian government. He does not control the intelligence services. He does not control the Revolutionary Guards. He does not control the nuclear weapons program. But his comment was really aimed at the West, the Europeans in particular, trying to warn them that if they did not quickly finish the renegotiation of the Iran deal before he leaves power, that very bad things were going to happen, such as Iran enriching uranium to weapons grade. Now, this is not a surprise, Jimmy. You and I know this. The IAE has known this. Our listeners have known this because we've talked about it. These are capabilities that the Iranians have never given up. They have had this capability of enriching to weapons grade for many years now. They just haven't done it. What Rouhani is saying is that, well, we can step on the gas, we can turn up the centrifuges, and we can enrich uranium to weapons grade if we decide to, uh, because the West and the United States do not give us the kind of sanctions relief and the kind of economic aid that we've been asking for. So it's a, it's a cry for help, and it's a warning, but it's aimed mainly at the West. It is not giving us insight into capabilities that we didn't know they already have. They have had these capabilities for years. And at the same time, Ken, it looks like Iran refusing to hold any negotiations with the Biden administration until mid-August, of course, waiting for the installation of their next president, I would imagine. Well, that's right, and that shows you kind of the futility of Rouhani's remarks and his frustration. He wanted to come to a deal before he left office. That was his goal. He had stated it repeatedly. He had staked his historical reputation, if you wish, on reviving this nuclear deal, which he knew would essentially allow Iran to permanently 
be on a path to nuclear weapons and to remain its capabilities to make nuclear weapons while getting sanctions relief and economic assistance from the West. So he knew it was a good deal for Iran, but the hardliners in Iran don't like it. They believe they can cheat anyway. They are not so much concerned about sanctions relief as Rouhani is, because they know that when sanctions are on Iran, guess what happens? They resort to the black market, and the Revolutionary Guards controls the black market. They sell oil to Iraq. They sell oil to other countries. They do ship-to-ship transfers, all of which are illegal, which are banned by U.S. and, in many cases, by international sanctions. And guess what? They make a huge profit on those black market deals. So the Revolutionary Guard is not in a hurry for sanctions relief, and that's why the new president, who's very close to them and to Hamane, the Supreme Leader, says, hey, uh, we're not going to have any more negotiations until I come into power, and if we negotiate anything, it's going to be on our terms. Ken, I'm watching one particular nation very closely, the closest neighbor with the longest border with Israel would be Jordan. And now they are announcing they have aligned themselves with the Islamic Republic of Iran. What can you tell us? Well, there have been some very curious steps over the past couple of weeks by King Abdullah and some of his close advisors who have taken to the airwaves to explain them. And I think it shows the desperation of the Jordanian government uh, with their inability to respond to the COVID crisis, uh, the economic crisis which has gripped the country. The Jordanians are not very good at managing their economy or managing uncertainty. I've seen this over the past 30 years uh, in reporting from Jordan. They always try to seek an external scapegoat for their own management problems. So King Abdullah recently has not just been uh, agreeing to sell Iranian oil through Iraq on the international market, but he has also been promoting Shia Islam in Jordan. A very, very bizarre thing for him to do. He has agreed that for, to allow the Iranians to open an airport at this uh, shrine in uh, south of Amman for a, a Shia cousin of, uh, well, I should say a cousin of Muhammad, who is revered by the Shias. And the shrine has basically been inoccupied for generations and generations because the Sunni Muslims don't revere this particular guy. His name is Jafar ibn Abu Talib, uh, Muhammad's cousin. And he died in Karak in Jordan, fighting the Byzantine Empire. So it's a, it's a very strange circumstance. The king is apparently hoping to get some kind of financial assistance from Iran, but I really don't know what graveyard he's whistling past because the Iranians themselves are dead broke. They can't even provide clean drinking water to the suburbs of Tehran. Farmers in Iran have been protesting for weeks and weeks because they don't have enough water for their crops. So I don't know uh, what he thinks he's going to get from uh, the Iranian regime, but I doubt it's going to be the billions of dollars in aid that he's hoping for. I've been to that Shiite shrine there in Jordan a number of times. When we take our tours to the Middle East, we'd stop briefly there. Well, in Israel, the military requesting funding to do a what I would refer to as a preemptive strike on Iran. That's a new development. Uh, it, it is, and it's also another bizarre story because, you know, we've been led to believe by the international media for the past 10 years that 
former Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu had his finger on the trigger and was ready to strike Iran militarily at any instant whatsoever. And now we learn, at least we're told by the Israeli media, that that's not the case, that Bibi didn't spend money on the military so they could develop those long-range strike capabilities. And now the new government is complaining and saying, we need more assets, more resources for the military, so eventually, if we decide, we can launch a military strike on Iran. It's, it, look, uh, Jimmy, I, I can't second-guess Israeli politicians. It's one of the weirdest countries in the world when it comes to intra-party infighting. They scramble like cats and dogs. They're fighting at each other's throats at every instant, and they say the most outrageous things. But this one is quite telling, because it suggests that the whole media narrative about Bibi Netanyahu for the past 10 years has been completely wrong, and he's been doing what you and I have discussed on these airwaves, which is fighting Iran with non-kinetic means. In other words, through, through cyber warfare, through shutting down their nuclear program with intelligence operations and assassinations, but not by planning to launch a military strike. They always say, and as a journalist for some 29 years in Israel, there's never a dull moment in the Israeli political arenas, and you've just proven that point. <laughs> hey, what about Afghanistan? That's in the news a lot. With that withdrawal, it seems to have opened the door for China. They want to come in and be the mediator. I don't know who they're going to mediate between, maybe Afghans and the Taliban. What's the story? Well, good luck to the Chinese on that. Uh, you know, they've got their eyes on the trillion dollars mineral resources in Afghanistan. So it, it, it's kind of the hidden story of Afghanistan people have not been reporting on. They've got the underground, the, the mountains are full of copper, beryllium, of sapphires and diamonds and gold and you name it, rubies. They're full of uh, precious metals and precious stones. Uh, President Trump at one point was interested in USA to develop these mineral resources in Afghanistan, and he quickly gave up because of the politics of the country. It's impossible to get any kind of agreement between the Taliban and the government. So, you know, I wish the Chinese a great deal of luck. Go step into that quagmire, buddies, and uh, you're going to have a lot of fun. So they're trying to mediate. They've gone to neighboring countries saying, we're here, we're ready to step in now that the U.S. is stepping out. But I think the Chinese might find after Russia and the United States, that Afghanistan is where empires go to die. Looks like we thought Islamic State was gone away, but now they are regrouping there in Iraq. Give us the latest. Well, again, this is a story I've been reporting on on the ground in Iraq in recent years. ISIS is still there. They're not there in any kind of form or numbers that they were before, but they're in the hinterlands. They're in the mountains. Recently, the Iraqi army has been chasing them in the Humrein Mountains outside of Kirkuk. These are small groups of ISIS fighters, but they are still there. They have no caliphate. They don't command territory. They're on the run. They're in hiding, but they can still carry out small terrorist operations. And dear friends, this is not news information that you will hear from mainstream media. The entire conversation I had with Ken Timmerman today is information that is key for your understanding of what really is happening geopolitically around this world. And that's why we go to Ken Timmerman on a weekly basis. Ken, thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always my pleasure. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, David Dolan standing by. We'll bring him to the broadcast table with his Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here 
on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and five-hour audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top 10 news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, just a moment ago, we promised that David Dolan would come give us his Middle East news update. This is a report that each and every student of Bible prophecy must hear on a weekly basis. And that's why we bring David to the broadcast table. David, let me get right underway with information that I need you to comment on. It looks like that the Israeli military is requesting funding for a potential strike, a preemptive strike against Iran. I thought under the Netanyahu government, they were ready to do that. Is that not the case? Can you give me more details on this story? Well, Jimmy, the former Prime Minister Netanyahu was ready about 10 years ago to strike Iran. That's been documented in some books and other, other reports. And it was vetoed by the military brass at the time and by some other members of his cabinet that didn't want to do that. And he just didn't feel he had a broad enough support. But what they're saying is that in recent years, he's neglected preparations, especially funding for the military to be ready to undertake what would be a giant operation, Jimmy, because the Iranian nuclear program is spread out over that large country, 10 times the size of Israel in population and much larger geographically. It would be a major operation. But, Jimmy, we don't have any confirmation of these media reports this week that an increase in funding has been asked for. It's not something that they would comment on. It's, uh, you know, a clandestine operation if it happens, and they don't want to start talking about the details of that. 
but the media is reporting that they have asked for an increase in funding, and that's after all the United Nations has said that uh, Iran is just months away from uh, the breakthrough where they could have nuclear weapons. They are enriching uranium at a furious pace, and um, the Israelis know that. They know they could already possess nuclear weapons, having friends in North Korea and Pakistan, so we just don't know. But it's a serious situation. No confirmation, but very likely that they are asking for increased funding because it looks like such an operation may, in fact, be necessary. And, David, there's a story coming out of Jordan. Jordan is the nation with the longest border with the Jewish state of Israel. They're saying right now that they are ready to align with the Islamic Republic of Iran. That could motivate the military to want to do a preemptive strike, could it not? Well, Jimmy, it's reported. I'm not sure it's the case. The Abdullah government, the king there and his Hashemite regime is very pro-Western. The United States just announced a couple weeks ago that it's moving its main supply base for the Middle East, which was in Qatar, up to Jordan. So that will increase American military presence in the country of Jordan. They still have the peace treaty with Israel, but we've known for some time that Iran would love to get their hands on that country. They've basically taken over Syria, basically taken over Lebanon, basically control the Gaza Strip via Hamas, and they've been increasing their moves in recent years with the Sunni Arab movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, based in Egypt, but very strong in Jordan. Uh, opinion polls show the opposition to the peace treaty with Israel inside of Jordan is very strong. And we have to remember that about 60% of Jordanian citizens say that they're Palestinians. They came across the river in 1948 or 1967 and entered Jordan, and they still consider themselves Palestinians. So Iran sees a great opportunity there, and those press reports are saying that they have been moving on that, and it would be a disaster of extreme proportions if they fell, Jordan fell under uh, Iranian sway, given that uh, Jerusalem is just, you know, 35 miles from the Jordanian capital of Amman, and it's the longest shared border of any, with any Arab country Israel has with Jordan. So let's hope it's not true, but we can assume that Iran is certainly trying to increase their influence everywhere as they've done in Iraq, as well as Lebanon and Syria and Gaza. I just ask you, David, about the military requesting more funding to be able to do a preemptive strike on Iran. And when I look at the new government, the coalition government, they seem to be pretty silent on Iran. Are they as concerned as the Netanyahu government was? The new Bennett government said quite loudly that he doesn't want to see this five-nation accord with Iran resumed. The United States, of course, in talks in Vienna with Iran and other of the powers that were involved in that about restarting it, but those talks have stalled in recent weeks. The new Iranian president seems uh, dead set against doing anything that would even appear to slow down their nuclear program. So Bennett and Lapid have made those statements. But at the same time, they're saying that Netanyahu wasn't preparing enough for a possible preemptive strike, hinting that they will be more prepared themselves and that they recognize this may happen. And I think they do, Jimmy. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems going on right now, a lot of situations. So they're maybe not commenting out loud too much about this. But we can assume that the IDF, and we know, in fact, they've been developing plans for some years for such a strike. 
knowing that it may come, and uh, it would probably have to be soon, given how fast and furious the enrichment uh, program is in Iran. David, a very interesting discussion going on in the Israeli Knesset, which is the parliamentary legislative body of Israel. They're discussing access to the Third Temple, which will be on the Temple Mount in the future. Now, it's not there at the present time. However, the entrance, the only non-Muslim entrance to the Temple Mount has some real problems. It's about to fall apart. What can you tell us? What's the latest? Well, Jimmy, yeah, that's the Mugrabi Gate in the um, southwest corner of the Temple Mount. It's elevated. It's above the women's section of the Western Wall prayer area. It's a temporary footbridge uh, suspended in hair, basically, that was put up over 10 years ago and intended to just be up there for a couple years until a more permanent structure could be built, a solider structure, as it were. And when it was announced that Israel would maybe begin work on a permanent structure and the Jerusalem municipality ordered the old bridge down, that was a few years ago, uh, havoc uh, ensued in the Arab world, and especially amongst Hamas and Hezbollah and others, screaming that Israel's Judaizing Jerusalem. And by the way, Jimmy, they discovered near there recently and just announced this week that they found part of the wall that the Babylonians broke into in, in 586 B.C. The ancient wall of Jerusalem is described in Isaiah and other prophets in the books of the Bible. And uh, Hamas went ballistic over that and said, you're, again, trying to steal the Arabic history of the city. There were no Jews here. There were no old walls and no temple and that sort of thing. So, so just replacing a footbridge that is a dangerous structure, it really is Engineers say not uh, built to be a permanent bridge, not built to carry that sort of weight. To just say they're going to do that, it creates chaos. And so far, no government has done it. But the new Bennett government says we have to do this. We could have hundreds of people on the bridge fall down onto hundreds of female worshippers below at the Western Wall and kill you know, hundreds of people. So it has to be replaced, they're saying, and we'll see what happens. But it just shows, again, anything touching Jerusalem is like a, a firecracker going off. It's a spark that can set a big fire ablaze very, very quickly. The Joe Biden administration has been putting pressure both on Israel and the Palestinians to go back to the negotiating table. So Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority, drew up a list of demands for going back to the negotiating table. And in fact, there were no concessions from the Palestinian Authority. That's going to hamper any type of future negotiations, isn't it? Well, Jimmy, as I've been saying for several years now, there's just no evidence on the ground that we're in any way prepared to resume a real peace process. The Palestinians are deeply divided, Hamas controlling the Gaza Strip, and after the last war, opinion polls showing that their popularity has soared. Uh, about two-thirds of the Palestinian people say they back Hamas over the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, as you just mentioned. There is no way he can make concessions to Israel when Hamas's platform is the destruction of the state of Israel. No Tel Aviv, no Haifa, let alone Jerusalem. Total control, total disappearance of Israel. That's their platform. It still is. They're backed by Iran and Hezbollah and others. No way that Abbas can 
can really get a peace process going. And frankly, Joe Biden seems to be barking up a wrong tree here. It seems to be politics. It's just stirring up more trouble at a time when we don't need more trouble. And it's just really not the way to go. People want to see peace, but the conditions have to be a little more ripe on the ground for it to be possible. It's just not there. That's the voice of David Dolan. He's been a journalist in the Middle East for over 35 years. That's why we go to him on a weekly basis for his Middle East news update. And we who study Bible prophecy need to hear this report weekly as well. David, thank you. An excellent report today. Appreciate it so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Winky Madad joins me at the broadcast table. We're going to be talking about Tishba'av. If you don't know what that is all about, stay tuned. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're going to move into our second half hour. As I said earlier, I ask for 90 minutes. If you'll give me that, I'll give you my broadcast partners around the world who will give us insight into current events unfolding. Now, to prove that statement, we're going around the world. We go to Shiloh, a location in the middle part of the state of Israel, one of the oldest communities in Israel, historic, political, and prophetic significance, where we find, of course, the broadcast partner, Winky Madad. Now, Winky, this weekend, Tisha B'Av. That's the name of the date in Hebrew. That phrase means the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av, and of course in the Jewish year 5781. But we're here in 2021, and I think that we need to rehearse for those eavesdropping on the conversation. What Tisha B'Av is all about, it's very significant. First, just lay it out for us. What's the historic background of Tishbaav. Well, Jimmy, the Bible records that there are several fast days that were observed by the Jews, and of course continue to be observed by the Jews, and one of them is called the fast of the fifth month. And there are two ways of doing the calendar here in our Hebrew calendar. If we start from the month of Nisan, in which the holiday of Passover is celebrated, the fifth month is the month of Av, which usually always falls either in middle to late July or very early August. 
And on that day, we note that uh, the temple was destroyed twice, uh, according to our tradition, although one tradition also says it was on the the tenth of Av rather than ninth, but that's just equivocating, as we say. It's our tradition that the day on which the twelve spies or the lookouts or the scouts, I, I prefer scouts actually, uh, who scouted out the land, they came back to Moses and they said before the children of Israel, you know, it's going to be a tough haul and we're not sure. Ten of them said that, and the other two of the tribes, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, no, it's all, let's go, was also on the ninth above. So in our Judaism, we have a heavy-duty day on the ninth above, like the fast day of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the full 24 hours of no water, no food, no washing, most of the time uh, saying prayers, and it recalls the fact that the temples were lost, which were like the, the jewel in the crown, the diadem highlight of Jewish relationship between land, people, and God in Jerusalem, which was the temple. And even though 2000 Years almost have gone by. We continue to fast because we have a people with a very long memory. And those two temples destroyed 586 B.C. before the Common Era, and then, of course, 70 A.D. as well. Now, I do know, Winky, that prior to this Tishbaav, there has been a time of fasting as well. Why does that take place? A three-week lead-up to the ninth of Av, starting on the 17th of Tammuz, which was when the city walls were breached. Some other things happened, and we won't get into all the details. The Talmud is very expansive on, on historical events on this. So actually, it's a three-week period of a, a lead-up. The first fast day, the 17th of Av, was only from the early morning, from the dawn until uh, sunset. Fishabov, of course, is all 25 hours. But this entire week, for example, I have not been shaving, Jimmy. As you know, and maybe some of our listeners in the Jewish tradition, not shaving is a sign of mourning. And in fact, we are now in the lead-up to Tisha B'Av, the week before. We do not partake of meat. Uh, we only eat dairy, the more observant Jews, like the Jew you're talking to. It's a leveled rollout of preparation and we take things very seriously, those of us who do take things very seriously. Of course, many tens or hundreds of thousands of Jews across the world are in the same situation. And it's just indicative for people who perhaps are not aware of these traditions that they're very, very inbuilt and very layered and very consciousness-raising of all the historical events. And that's why sometimes people say, why bring up history? Because that's who we were, and that's what we learned from. I do know that fasting is a part of the observance of Tishbaav, but what else happens? Do you not go to the Temple Mount? Some activities there involved as well? Well, Jimmy, some of us, of course, who are very active on the Temple Mount issue. We'll be going up on the Sunday. Uh, this year, uh, we, uh, the day upon which Tishbaav falls, of course, you only have a few hours to do so. It's between 7 and 11, and then from 
12.30 to 1.30. So hopefully we'll get an awful lot of people up there this year. We have been working very hard. Jimmy, I was in the Knesset earlier this week on Tuesday, and we had four or five members of Knesset invite people come in. We had about 40, 50 people. For two hours, we discussed various issues. For example, we'd like the Temple Mount opened on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, which is not the case. It used to be the case maybe about 15, 20 years ago, and things change sometimes. Uh, we'd like perhaps what's called the Mugrabi Bridge, that uh, wooden platform uh, that snakes its way up to the Temple Mount, to be replaced because it's a danger. It could fall. The wood is rotting in some places, or someone could set fire to it from the inside by throwing firebombs over the wall, which is not that difficult in that situation. They do it with rocks. So we've had even uh, inside the Knesset political discussions on this. I do know also, Winky, that you go to the gates surrounding the Temple Mount and spend time in prayer, but you read the book of Lamentations. Why that particular biblical book? Well, first of all, just to note that that uh, custom uh, of going around on the gates, most people would probably think it's modern, but in the already the 900s, what we call the period of the Go'onim, the leaders of the Jewish community in Babylon, Jews would come to Jerusalem and encircle the city walls in prayer and reciting psalms. But as to your question about what we do in the sense of Coming to the Book of Lamentations, that's a tradition. Jeremiah was the prophet who was witness to the destruction, to the besieging of the city, to the horrors of the people inside who were starving, then, of course, leaving and, and being taken out to Babylon. I'm, I'm talking about, of course, the first destruction of the temple. And anybody who reads his the Book of Lamentations, especially, if I'm not mistaken, Chapter 3 is met with powerful literature, which, of course, we believe links us to the divine and sets us in the mood of, of realizing exactly what happened at that time and why we mourn and why we fast. And all of these activities, praying at the different gates around the Temple Mount, reading the Book of Lamentations, and, of course, fasting, creating a desire in the Jewish people for the rebuilding of the next temple, correct? Absolutely, although it, there is a story that we do not know if it was true or not, but I will tell the tale to you and our listeners, uh, Jimmy. Napoleon was, uh, of which it was told, that he was walking around one night in Paris, and he heard this bewailing and crying coming from a, a corner building. He walked in and found Jews sitting on the floor, and he asked someone of authority, he said, what are you doing on the floor reading from the Bible, the Book of Lamentations, and, and crying? And he said, well, our temple was destroyed. And he said, well, when did this happen? I didn't hear about it. And they said, well, it happened, okay, we're talking about Napoleon, that was 1800. It happened a thousand years ago or so. Napoleon says, a thousand years ago, 1200 years ago? A people that mourns in such a way the loss of the temple, which of course for us also means the loss of political sovereignty and independence, will yet regain both the temple 
and its political sovereignty. So whether or not the story is true, of course, Jimmy, as we know, it does have a kernel of truth, and Fishabov was also a contributory factor in bringing Jews back to Zion. What a very, very interesting story with a better understanding of the perspective for a temple to be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem among the Jewish people. Winky, thank you for sharing with us both the story of Napoleon and also giving us a better understanding of Tishbaav as well. Appreciate it so much. Have a good Tishbaav if you can say that. And we'll look forward to another conversation down the road. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, let's go to John Root now. He's the man who covers the European Union for us. And, John, quite interesting, there is a political alliance who is fighting the creation of a European super state. Now, first of all, what is a super state? And number two, who is fighting against it? This is really a top story. Of course, the underlining purposes and intentions of the European Union is to create uh, what would be similar to a United States of Europe or a super state. And you may say, well, you know, why would that be something that's negative? But it's not the fact of this alliance being democratic. It's extremely undemocratic. So countries are having their identity essentially erased in one way or another. But we see here a highly significant event here is that the EU has formed what is called the future of the European Union debate. When they do these things, it's extremely one-sided. But 16 political parties across Europe have gotten together with a letter that's written by the former prime minister of Poland, and they come out directly saying the European Union intentions for a super state to void Europe of its traditions, its social institutions, its moral principles, instead of protecting Europe, now it's become a great source of problems and anxiety, and they come right out and they say this cooperation of European nations, the EU, has to have a tradition and respect for the culture and history, the Judeo-Christian heritage of Europe, not their destruction. Instead, what's happening is the EU is continuing to push and advocate super state that destroys all European tradition and transforming uh, even basic moral principles. So this is a highly significant that 16 political parties highly recognized on the level of the European uh, Parliament and beyond have come out with a formal statement. This is something that needs to be referred to. And quite interesting, you're a student of Bible prophecy as I am. Sounds much like the European superstate could develop into the revived Roman Empire, part of the prophetic scenario for God's Word. Well, this last week, the foreign minister of Israel, Lapid, visited in Europe, went to NATO, said that Israel is interested in developing stronger ties with NATO, and of course then the EU leaders are saying they want to deepen those ties with Israel as well. Quite an interesting development. Yes, there's an attempt to reboot some of the relations with Europe from the Israeli standpoint. They have a new government, as we know, 
and they have made the overture to deepen the ties with NATO on, on several very important levels. Even the head of the European foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, he has also said that this is an opportunity for a fresh start. But if the conditions are met, and there's always lots of conditions, uh, in the past there was an association agreement between Israel and the European Union. It was ratified in the year 2000, and both sides were to meet in an annual meeting. This meeting has not happened since 2012. So the impetus here is that, the, that these annual meetings on the association level could begin again. So Israel is interested strengthening NATO, which is not surprising, and then trying to reopen some of the uh, relations with the European Union. Talk to me about the EU launching a legal effort and action against both Poland and Hungary as it relates to the LGBT agendas there in those two countries. This is, yes, speaking about agenda, that's a very good approach on this. The uh, EU executive is actually launching legal action against Hungary and Poland because uh, Hungary had adopted a law that was banishing the depiction of LGBTQ homosexuality in books and television educational purposes for those under 18 years old. That's what they had adopted a, a law. The European Commission president came out and said that it was uh, shameful. The Dutch prime minister essentially was saying this was grounds to kick Hungary out of the European Union because they won't expose their children to what is being labeled as sexual propaganda. It's a startling example of the type of control, and this is the very reason why the 16 political parties wrote that paper. They want to be free to make their own decisions and not have some new form of government where national identities are completely uh, overwhelmed. And in this case, a simple law from, from one country has created this reaction. Additional political activities happening in the European Union. That indeed will set the stage for the prophetic scenario found in God's Word to be fulfilled. And that's why we bring John to this broadcast table on a weekly basis. John, thank you so very much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. Many things to, to monitor and to be aware of. Thank you. Well, Dr. Don DeYoung is coming Mike's side again. I really enjoy each and every conversation I have with Don. And this last week when I was trying to arrange to put this interview in place, I got a hold of Don and he said, you'll never guess where I am. I said, okay, tell me. He was at the airport in Las Vegas, Nevada, getting ready to board a plane to go home in Indiana. And I said, well, why have you been out there? Now, Don, the seven previous days before you got to the airport, you had an exciting adventure. Tell everybody about it. Well, yes, Jimmy, uh, we spent a week at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Sometimes we hike, but this time we uh, chartered powered rafts. There were actually a group of 28 of us, and I was one of the leaders. And we rafted 200 miles along the Colorado River through uh, Grand Canyon National Park. Very warm in the summertime, 
but it's just a wonderful corner of creation with rocks and waterfalls and stars at night. Well, I mentioned he was an astronomer. He is a professor. He is a scientist, but indeed a creationist as well. And that's one of the reasons to go to Grand Canyon, the proof of creation there, correct? Well, yes, Jimmy. In fact, uh, when we are down in the canyon looking at rock formations and and all of the details, we see multiple evidences, especially for the Genesis flood, for that global flood. We can see the rock layers. We can actually see where the earth was scoured right down to the bedrock before um, the sedimentary rocks began to form. So it's a wonderful outdoor laboratory verifying uh, that Old Testament um, event, uh, Noah and the Genesis flood. Talk to me. How old are you, Don? (laughs) Well, I'm in my mid-70s. Mid-70s. Can you believe that, folks? (laughs) I would dare not try such an adventure. But I'm envious of my good buddy Don DeYoung on that trip to the Grand Canyon. Well, Don, I wanted to get a hold of you. I've got a pulpery of items I wanted to discuss with you, so we'll do it here now. Richard Branson, or should I say Sir Richard Branson, had a flight with his space airplane into what they say is outer space. I'm wondering how in the world did he do that without the gear of an astronaut and be able to float in space like that? Well, Jimmy, this whole space age has uh, come a long ways, and those uh, entrepreneurs are able to come up with a new technology. That rocket that recently went up 80 miles, it's not your typical rocket. It's more of a, uh, a space plane. It was actually dropped off another plane at a high altitude, and then it's um, shot upward to uh, just above our atmosphere. Yeah, they don't wear all of the outfits that we see from the Apollo days, but uh, they are certainly high-tech, well-cared for. Of course, um, space exploration always has its risks, but it's uh, quite an adventure. I know Branson is getting involved in space tourism in the near future, and that's the whole purpose for his flight. What are your thoughts about space tourism? Is that going to be successful? Should we be doing? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's all positive, Jimmy. People have been, you know, we are given uh, an interest in exploring. I even think of Scripture where it talks about searching things out is a glory. It's a a built-in adventure that we look for. And I might add, Jimmy, this whole area of um, private enterprise going into space is so interesting. It shows the uh, value, really, of the U.S. and our free market economy where there can be competition for uh, private enterprise to go into space, you simply would not see that in countries which have central planning. That kind of uh, individual progress does not occur. So I think this is all a good vote of confidence for um, the U.S. system of uh, government. You know, I would not be surprised to hear that Dr. Don DeYoung was on one of those space flights with the adventurism that's in his being. Well, let me get some other items I want to ask you about. The global warming. We've heard a lot about how hot it is out in the Midwest and out in the West. In fact, some records have been broken. Is this anything significant as it relates to global warming? Well, I would believe that it does tie together. The fact is, this unusual heat is not expected. It's 
not the typical year. So global warming becomes a good place to look as a reason. It may or, or may not. By the way, at the bottom of the canyon, it was well over 100 degrees by day and by night. Of course, that area is uh, always warm in the summertime. So, yes, we may be on the front end of um, some warming taking place. As we've uh, discussed before, Jimmy, the world's climate is always changing. It's always making adjustments. And during our uh, present decades, we are in an area of um, slight warming across the earth. In previous centuries, there's been cooling, there's been warming. Lots of factors come into play. I'm sure that there are some social effects going on, but there are lots of other natural effects as well. So many variables that there is unknowns that we live with. But just to realize that uh, we have the promise from Scripture that seasons will continue, whether it gets warmer, whether it gets cooler. You know, it's not going to be the demise of mankind. Uh, God's running the system. And he is still in charge. Well, there's another item I want to cover with you as well. There's been a lot of reporting of what people believe may be aliens in outer space that they've been able to observe recently. Many governments, including, for example, the United States and the European Union, accumulating information about what they say would be aliens in space. What do you think about this that is being reported? Is it real? What could be the reasoning for these sightings? Well, Jimmy, there certainly are um, unknown objects that have been uh, observed by the military and by individuals. I would not call them uh, aliens from outer space. Could be a number of explanations for this. It's interesting that uh, during the past year, during this pandemic, people have been free at home and looking at the sky more often and seeing and reporting on unknown lights in the sky. And maybe that's a reason for this surge in in the whole area. And uh, our government decided they better tell us as much as they know, which isn't very much. Anyway, uh, there are things we just don't understand very well. And uh, whether uh, they are recording and seeing uh, drones or weather balloons or aircraft or atmospheric phenomena, the list goes on and on of just what these might be. But we can say with certainty that after uh, a whole lifetime of this space age, there's no evidence for life anywhere else in the universe other than right here on planet Earth. Plenty of unknowns right here around our own planet of things that we don't understand very well. Might also mention, Jimmy, that we are so remote, the nearest nighttime star to us is four light years away. With our current technology, it would take probably 50,000 years for such a trip. So even uh, imagining aliens would not make such a, a long venture. In fact, the best way to look might be radio signals from space, and we do that. We listen to space, but all we hear is um, static, no, uh, nothing uh, intelligent out there other than perhaps the spirit world. I've heard some biblical scholars refer to what these sightings are would actually be demonic activity. Is that a possibility, Don? Well, certainly, Jimmy. You know, Satan is a deceiver. He's called the angel of light. And uh, it could well be that if people want to uh, go down that route of thinking of aliens and evolved life and have that whole area, that Satan will accommodate them, 
whether that's playing tricks with their mind or um, uh, even showing some kind of light, that is certainly a, a possibility, along again with natural phenomena. I remember Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, verses 4, 5, 11, and 24, used the word deception four times as the number one sign that the second coming, the return to earth of Jesus, was about to happen. The devil's going to be very active in the last days, isn't he, Don? Well, yes. Of course, he's uh, active today and and tomorrow uh, as well. And again, Jimmy, one of the uh, possibilities for that whole area of uh, unknown lights in the sky, get people thinking about aliens, you know, that could be used as a false evidence for evolution. If life evolved spontaneously on the Earth, then it should have happened elsewhere. And so that's how a lot of these lights are interpreted. Dr. Don DeYoung, a good friend of us here on Prophecy Today, a great broadcast partner and an adventurer just returning from a trip of seven days in the bottom of the Grand Canyon out in Nevada. Well, I hope you've been able to rest up a bit, Don. Get ready for your next trip. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jimmy. Good visiting with you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, David James, one more broadcast partner. We're going to be talking about the church in Cuba. David has visited the island of Cuba. That's going to be an interesting conversation. Keep the dial set where it is, and all of this will be heard on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here. We move to the last half hour of my 90-minute broadcast where I give you my broadcast partners around the world to give you information we need to understand in light of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I have a poll question. It's on my home page. Please go there. On the Jewish fast day of Tish B'Av, the day that both the first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. and the same calendar date that the second temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And as the Jews read the book of Lamentation and pray for the next Jewish temple in Jerusalem, do you think it is possible for that third temple to be built in our lifetime? That's the poll question. Please answer it if you will. And by the way, please pray for Prophecy Today and prayerfully consider giving financial support to the ministry. We now bring to this broadcast table David James. David and I get together on a weekly basis here on Prophecy Today weekend to have a conversation about an issue confronting the body of Christ and something that we need to have a biblical perspective of and so as you eavesdrop on the conversation, you and we both will be able to know how to walk in light of what God's Word says as we focus on that issue. This week, we're going to be talking about the ongoing crisis in Cuba. We haven't mentioned that on the broadcast yet, so I want you to stay tuned. But before that, again this week, David, we get from one of our listeners a prophecy question, and it's on the book of Revelation, this time concerning the identity of the beast in chapter 13. Talk to us about that. Well, Jimmy, our listener wrote this. I was wondering about Revelation 13.3. I know many believe this is referring to Antichrist, 
But I'm thinking this is referring to the revived Roman Empire. Antichrist is a little horn, not a head. What do you think? So, Jimmy, let me read the first three verses of that chapter. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So, Jimmy, the first thing I think we need to remember is that figurative language can use different images for the same thing. For example, in one place, Jesus is the good shepherd, but in another place, he is the gate to the sheepfold. So the beast in Daniel 7, I would say, is the Roman Empire, and then by extension, the revived Roman Empire. And the Antichrist is a little horn. And I think the beast from the sea in Revelation 13, though, is a person, just as the beast from the land is a person, the false prophet. Also, you can't really worship an empire, but the false prophet causes people to worship the first beast. And neither can an empire blaspheme, which is mentioned in verses 5 and 6. And then it seems to me that a singular person has authority over every t tribe, tongue, and nation in verse 7. So, Jimmy, it's a good question, but I think I'm going to stick with this being a vision representing a specific complex person. I do believe the exact same thing, David. And it's interesting to note the word antichrist, not even used ever in the book of Revelation. Back in First John, in second chapter and fourth chapter, we see that one of 27 names for the antichrist. Well, with the world watching what's been happening in Cuba, I thought it might be good for us to discuss the situation there in Cuba. And especially in light of the fact that, actually, you had an opportunity to go there fairly recently. Talk to us about that trip. Well, that's right, Jimmy. And this is the first time I've talked about that trip publicly, except for at our home church. Uh, back at the time, which was less than two years ago, I had mentioned in one of our weekly conversations on this program uh, that I was going to a limited access country, but for security reasons and privacy concerns, I couldn't say much about it at the time. And a couple who was has partnered with our ministry got connected with a Cuban pastor through Facebook, and after interacting with him, we felt comfortable enough to make arrangements to spend a couple of days with him. And it was a bit of a struggle due to the language barrier, but we were able to communicate well enough to get to know each other and to make some tentative plans for future ministry. And one thing I was amazed about was how much theological agreement there was between us. We're on the same page. Before I went, I had had him read our ministry statement of faith, and he said he completely agreed with it. And so he believes in salvation by uh, grace through faith alone, in eternal security, the cessation of the sign gifts, in dispensationalism, including the pre-trib rapture of the Church, and the millennial reign of Christ. And you know, Jimmy, it's getting harder to find pastors who believe all these things here in this country, and overseas it's almost impossible. And I was hoping to go back last summer, but COVID hit, and so that never materialized, of course. Well, praise the Lord for that pastor there in Cuba. And I want you to talk more about the situation there from the aspect of the Christian community as well. But we'll do that in a moment. I do want to ask you, if you will, summarize for us what has been happening over the last number of days there in Cuba, because it seems like all of these protests and unrest sort of came out of nowhere. 
Well, on Thursday, USA Today ran an article that opened with this. Thousands of Cuban protesters angered over food and medicine shortages, low COVID-19 vaccination rates, and electricity outages took to the streets Sunday and Monday for the first time in nearly 30 years. Uh, The protests are a rare defiance of the communist government's intolerance for dissent. And then on Wednesday, it said the Cuban president for the first time acknowledged government shortcomings after previously blaming the unrest on social media and agitation from the U.S. Now, another news agency reported that there have been months of food and medicine shortages and even the collapse of hospitals due to the pandemic. And the protesters were calling for political change after six decades of Communist Party rule, and they were shouting things like, we want freedom, down with dictatorship, homeland and life. We want vaccines, and we are not afraid. And so in response, the police used tear gas against the crowds and have arrested dozens of people with reports of some being tortured. And the Cuban authorities also blocked Internet access to uh, cut off the flow of information, especially from outside the country. Now, President Obama had taken steps to normalize relations, including uh, restoring diplomatic ties and expanding travel and trade, which he did through an executive order. But because of Cuba's ongoing domestic and foreign policies, the Trump administration reversed many of these. And now President Biden had talked about reversing Trump's policies, but the current situation has put him in a real bind. And I just now read that he's uh, considering even intervention. Mm, That would be a very interesting development. David, you know, our audience has a fairly wide age range. And because of that, some of us old guys are probably well knowledgeable of the history of the last 50 or 60 years there in Cuba. But there may be some who could use a refresher course on the background of Cuba. Please give us that. Well, Cuba is the largest island in the Caribbean. It's about the size of the state of Tennessee, interestingly. And it's located about 100 miles south of Florida. And it's actually an archipelago made up of about 1,600 islands with a population of over a million people. And until it was discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1492, it was populated by two separate indigenous people groups. Now, the first Spanish settlement was established in 1511, uh, but within 100 years, almost the entire native population had been wiped out by a combination of disease and uh, systematic genocide. And then the Spanish brought in more than a million Africans to work on their plantations until slavery was abolished in 1867. Now, Cuba remained a Spanish colony until the Spanish-American War of 1898 and then gained independence as a protectorate of the United States uh, in 1902. Then, going to the 50s, Batista staged a coup in 1952 and established a corrupt and repressive dictatorship And that was overthrown in 1958 under uh, Fidel Castro with backing from the U.S. But when it became clear that the Castro regime would be communist and pro-Soviet, Eisenhower had the CIA train Cuban refugees to overthrow their government, which resulted in a failed invasion that's known as the Bay of Pigs, and that was under John F. Kennedy. Then in 1962, the Soviet Union planned to put nuclear missiles in Cuba, and that led to a standoff in the Atlantic that could have led to World War III if Kennedy hadn't held his ground and if Khrushchev hadn't blinked. 
David, I understand that your visit to Cuba was not a very long visit. But uh, take a moment, if you will, and tell us what were some of your initial impressions of the country as a whole and the people that you had an opportunity to meet. Well, Jimmy, Cuba was a lot like many of the third world and developing countries I visited over the years, and many things that most of us take for granted and which are relatively inexpensive here as compared to wages, like electronics and cars, for example, they're generally very expensive, and so everything is repaired that can be repaired, uh, usually many times. It's common to see horse-drawn carts in town, and most of those horses were small and nothing but skin and bones. We stayed in a small apartment attached to a house, and the owners had to register us with the local government, just like we did when staying at a hotel in Hungary in 1990, a few months after the Berlin Wall fell. Uh, We went to a small grocery store one morning, and there was a long line of people standing outside, not because the store wasn't open, but because they would only allow a couple of people in at a time. Uh, But the people we met were friendly and kind, which is something I found all over the world. And we tend to, I think, mistakenly judge what those in other countries must be like uh, because of the actions of their governments. And the pastor had us for supper on Wednesday evening, and then he had me speak at the Bible study in his church that meets in their home, which is just a very tiny cinder block building with concrete floors. But As with everywhere I've been, born-again believers love the Lord and His Word, and there's a genuine warmth and connection that I would say transcends both language and cultural barriers. Now, this all said, David, I want to find out what can you tell our listeners about the present religious situation there in Cuba? Is there freedom of religion, and how are born-again believers affected by these government policies? Well, when the Spanish arrived in Cuba, they forced conversions, and that continues to influence Cuban culture. So while 60 to 70 percent of the population is Catholic, only 4 to 5 percent regularly attend Mass. Now, Santeria conflates Catholic saints with the deities of African religions that came to Cuba through the slave trade, and it's estimated that between 80 and 90 percent of Cubans consult Santeria priests And we see this kind of syncretism with Roman Catholicism all over the world. Protestant churches, on the other hand, make up only about 5% of the population, with Baptists and Pentecostals being the largest groups, but even most of the Baptists in the eastern half of the country are charismatic. Now, during most of Castro's rule, Cuba was a self-declared atheist state, and Christians were persecuted and marginalized. And even though Castro himself was educated by the Jesuits, He dismantled the Catholic school system in 1961 and nationalized the Catholic Church's property. But in the early 90s, Castro did lift some restrictions on religion, but the government is still far from friendly, and religious organizations have to deal with government interference all the time. And this is what uh, this pastor told me, that sometimes he even has to deal with infiltration by government informants. So there are tremendous challenges, but maybe there is change on the horizon for the Cuban people with what we're seeing right now, and maybe that will make it easier to get into the country and to reach them with the gospel and give more freedom to the pastors and believers who are there. David, I'm sure you would agree with me. When you look at the book of Acts, we see a record of persecution to the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem, and then it's spread around the world. But I would imagine persecution is going to help build the body of Christ there in Cuba. 
And I think that we should be praying for our brothers and sisters who do know Jesus Christ and want to reach out and bring other Cubans to Jesus Christ as well. Thank you for the research. Thank you for reporting on your visit to Cuba. I know that we've not wanted to talk about it before, but glad you got permission to be able to do that. And be sure to be ready for next week. We'll have another discussion we will have to have together. I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to look at the Bible in light of everything my broadcast partners had to say about the current events setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. What a privilege we have here at Prophecy Today, as each week I speak to my broadcast partners around the world and gather the details behind many of the current events happening in our world. These are events that may well be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And by the way, this is information that you will not hear from mainstream media. I'm so thankful for my team of broadcast partners and the work that they do for each of us. I'll get to their main stories and give you my prophetic perspective in a moment. But first, let me remind you, if you had to miss any of these reports, 
we have a way that you'll be able to go to listen to them at your convenience. You go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN. It's on the right-hand column if you'll scroll down. That's Prophecy Today Radio Network. And there we have archived each and every one of the reports. All you have to do is pull them up, listen to them when you have an opportunity sometime later at your convenience. And by the way, do me a favor. Please tell a family member and or a friend about these reports. They need to hear the reports as well so they can understand where we are in God's plan for the future. This will help our ministry as we try to reach around the world with this information. Again, you can get the reports at prophecytoday.com. That's the website. And then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, where they have been archived. And now to my prophetic perspective on these reports. Ken Timmerman, located in southern France, is watching the world, and he reported about the Iranian president, Rouhani, that says Iran can enrich their uranium to a weapon-grade level right away, even as the Israeli Defense Force is getting ready to do a preemptive strike on the Iranian development of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Remember, Ezekiel chapter 38 does not say that Iran will have nuclear weapons. Iran, however, will be in the alignment of nations. And let me remind you that Russia will also be a part of that alignment. They have nuclear weapons. Israel, who they will be attacking, has nuclear weapons. Therefore, they could retaliate. But the Bible does not mention nuclear weapons at the time of this alignment of nations. However, that's a viable possibility. But the Lord will intercede to protect the Jewish people, nuclear weapons or not. David Dolan gave us his Middle East news update, which included information about the Israeli members of Knesset discussing an entrance to the temple, which will ultimately be on the Temple Mount. Now, of course, we know it is not on the Temple Mount at this point in time, but the Maghrabi Gate, which is the only entrance to the Temple Mount for non-Muslims, in other words, Jews and Christians, is in ill repair. With the weight from those entering the Temple Mount that way could cause a disaster. And every time Israel wants to start to repair that entrance through the Maghrabi gate, that bridge there, the Muslim world goes crazy. However, it's interesting that the members of Knesset are discussing how to get up on to the Temple Mount. The reality is that there could be a temple on the Temple Mount in the very near future. According to Matthew 24, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Tishbaav begins tonight, Saturday night, and goes through sundown on Sunday. And this is a fast day for the Jewish people, Tishbaav, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. 
It's the day in 586 B.C. and 70 A.D., many years separating, but the same day that the first and second temples were destroyed. The Jews will go to the gates of the Temple Mount. They will read the book of Lamentations and then pray for a temple by next Tishbaal. John Rood gives us the European Union update, talking about an effort for a super state in Europe. My friend, this is a step towards fulfilled Bible prophecy. The European Union, I believe, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. You can study about that in Daniel chapter 7 and the book of Revelation chapter 17. Don DeYoung, who's a scientist and astronomer, came to talk to me about a pulpery of items. We talked about space tourism, global warming, and aliens in outer space. Well, space tourism is a viable possibility, but when you look at global warming, it is not biblical. Book of Genesis says that summer, fall, winter, and spring will continue on until Jesus Christ comes back and brings about a new earth and a new heaven. God's word is absolute on the subject. And David James came reporting on the Cuban crisis that is taking place and the Christian community in Cuba. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 talks about each of us praying for those who are in higher authority. I do believe that would be our responsibility today. Not only the American leaders like President Biden, but also the leaders of the Cuban communist Marxist nation. You know, the early church expanded because of persecution that seems to be taking place in Cuba as we speak. So pray not only for the leaders in America and Cuba, but all the Christian community in Cuba. As you've listened to the reports from my broadcast partners, you have to realize that God's prophetic plan is coming into place. And that is exciting. You know, the next event is the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ will take us out of this confusion, this contradiction, and this conflict. And may I remind you that that rapture could happen at any moment, even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.